Uh, well, many of the fans haven't been able to get down to watch England on this uh, fantastic Ashes tour, which many people obviously look forward to. But uh, some of the press pack are down there, and uh, I've managed to track down uh, Mr. Ali Martin from The Guardian. Uh, Ali, welcome along to 98 Round. Cheers, Darren. Good to see you again, mate. Yeah. Uh, how's uh, how's things going uh, in in Australia? Uh, well, I mean, off the field. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to on the field in a sec. On the field is pretty uh, self-evident. No, off the field, it's been a strange tour so far, to be honest. We've um, uh, pretty much the entire UK press pack, albeit there's only about eight or nine of us, uh, had to fly in initially to Sydney where there wasn't quarantine. Uh, or rather, there was sort of 72 hours of quarantine in wherever you were staying and then you could come out and roam and what have you. Um, so, yeah, so and then it was a case of actually covering the first test off off the TV, which is pretty unsatisfactory in, in a lot of ways. But we weren't alone. There was, you know, there was there was a lot of the Australian press pack were the same. Uh, a lot of the commentary teams were, were doing it from either Melbourne or Sydney as well. Essentially, that the hard border at Queensland, which needed 14 days hard quarantine to to get into meant that um, it was quite off putting for a lot of people and also created a lot of logistical issues as well. So it's been a case of doing the first test uh, off the TV in Sydney, but also sort of also being able to sort of partly work, obviously work on the same time zone, but sort of taking a bit of the local kind of mood as well. Um, but then uh, three of us in an advance party of today managed to get ourselves to South, uh, to South Australia, to Adelaide. Uh, where we're we're now ready to start, you know, going up to training and, and bothering players at nets, and um, and then fingers crossed, come Thursday we'll get to watch what should be a you know pretty iconic day night uh, test match uh, at the Adelaide Oval. So um, yeah, yeah, all systems are going now. It feels like the tour's sort of starting in earnest, certainly for the press pack and, and maybe for England after they seem to use the first test as a bit of a warm up. Yeah, say hello to Danny Rubin from me. <laughs> mm. I'm trying to badger him for. Mm. Some kind of access, but uh, yeah, he'll give us something eventually, <laughs> I'm sure. So let's talk about uh, the obvious. Um, let's start off with given England's lack of preparation, do you think what happened was inevitable? Um, I don't know, it's, it's funny actually. I mean, you'd say that, but then, um, you know, Australia came into it. Uh, a little bit underprepared themselves. Uh, you'd probably argue that more of their first team test players were key players in the World T20 campaign that they obviously went on to win as well. So um, you'd have thought they'd be a bit drained. I mean, obviously, there's nothing like home comforts for those players. So they'd be coming back to very familiar surroundings. And, you know, the Gabba, I know they'd lost there in, in, in January to India, but essentially a sort of, you know, before that, it was a, a 32-year stronghold for Australian cricket. So hugely familiar surroundings for them. And for England, well... You know they had their chances. They won. They won the toss um, and ultimately blew it on that first morning when they, you know, collapsed to what was it, eleven for three, twenty-nine for four, and eventually managed to sort of muster just about one hundred and forty-seven. But um, they got a bit unlucky. I must say they got a bit unlucky on the first evening. If if they'd managed to stay on the field rather than the rains that came, you'd have fancied probably England seam attack might have done some damage then in that evening session. As it was. Australia's innings started in, in bright blue skies and as well as England bowled. And, and actually the frontline seamers did do well. I think they deserve credit for the way that they performed. You know, you, you, you're going to do so well to win a test match from that position. So, um, you know, from, from the day one position. So really, um, I don't think it was inevitable because I think, you know, I think England are probably, you'd like to think they were slightly better than what they showed over the course of those four days. And, and Australia, you know, they're not, they're not without their own weaknesses or a slight soft underbelly in their batting lineup as well. So, 
Uh, England, yeah, they probably they probably possibly picked the wrong team. I would have gone for five seamers personally and probably bowled first. Um, but as it was, some individuals in the side obviously had a some pretty some personal nightmares out there, and and as a collective, it just wasn't enough in, in the face of what was, let's be honest, a pretty impressive performance by Australia as well. The Ashes, what makes it so special is that it, there are so many subplots and the the whole backdrop to everything and how it unfolds. Um, I mean, let's not be under any illusions. We are just one match into a series of five um, and expect anything and everything to happen going forward. But just looking at, uh, I'm just looking at selection. Uh, lots to be made of the fact that Broad was was left out. The Australians clearly targeted Jack Leach. They always seem to do this. They'll pick someone. It's usually the captain that they want to go after, but they seem to go after Jack Leach. Um, and... Uh, Paul Chap hasn't played Test cricket for for quite a long time. Comes back in into a baptism of fire for this Ashes series, um, and then it just raised the questions: that Are we missing Moeen uh, on 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 this tour? <laughs> well, we're always missing Moeen Ali because you know he, you know he makes everything so great when he's out on the out on the field doing his best work. But let's be honest: I mean, four years ago um, was a real struggle for Moeen in Australia, and. Um, you know, it probably was time for, for England to move on. It certainly felt like it was time for Moen to move on. He felt like he'd sort of run his race in Test cricket. Um, but you're right. I mean, I think probably what we've got to look back on really is all for all the talk of two years of preparation for this Ashes tour is that we've had pretty much two wasted summers in terms of England's spin department. In in 2020, we saw Don Best promoted to the role and, and sort of entrusted with it, uh, you know, and after Leach had had a, let's be honest, a pretty decent Ashes series the summer before. I mean, obviously, famously with the one not out at Headingley, but he did, he was taking his wickets at 24 in that series. And if he hadn't overstepped when he removed Steve Smith at, at Old Trafford, who went on to make that big double hundred, you know, it could have been a very, very different series there. So Jack Leach was unfortunate to be overlooked. They, they, they heavily invested in Don Best two years ago. Um, that was a misplaced confidence for a player that, that palpably wasn't ready for international cricket yet. And, and as such, you know, the, the pair of them combined in, in the subcontinent early this year. Jack Leach was the leading wicket taker. But then come the summer with no Ben Stokes, England just didn't feel able to pick Jack Leach as one of four bowlers. And they wanted to have four seamers in the attack. And so Jack missed out all summer. So it was, a, it was a massive ask for him to come in and perform straight away, especially with a lack of overs in the warm-ups as well. And you're right, Australia. I mean, that was a pretty merciless kind of targeting of him. Um, we've seen it before. We probably saw it before in Graham Swan's last Ashes tour as well. You know, where they, if they I mean, it's such a, it's kind of stating the obvious, really. But if you are able to take down the spin bowler in an attack, um, it just increases the workload uh, for the seamers. It gives the captain fewer places to turn. It makes it very hard to control the run rate. And uh, that cumulative effect over time that meant that, you know, even when England did manage to get Australia, what was it, five, six down after after tea on the on the second day, they'd run out. The seamers had run out of gas. Leach had nowhere to go. And a guy like Travis Head, who for all the best one in the world, I think he's clearly a talented player. And he's, you know, he's, he's got a back catalogue of success in domestic cricket, albeit he struggled at Sussex during the summer. But, you know, he it was quite remarkable to see a player of, of his level survived the first 10 balls but then really crack on and you know an 85 ball 100 that's the kind of stuff that we you know we talk about we, we sort of dream about uh, a player like Joss Butler doing for England with a, with a platform set and yet doesn't seem to happen um, and here was Travis Head really 
repaying the faith that Australia selectors showed in him. So, um, you know, that is, it was it was a it was a very calculated assault on Jack Leach by Australia's batsmen, um, and it might have even already had the effect of hitting him out the series. I don't know. We're, we're still waiting to sort of get to nets tomorrow and try and find a bit more about selection. But um, but yeah, it's hard to see how Jack comes back from this. But then again, it's almost hard to see how England can. Uh, have a all the same attack and uh, and still be able to keep up with the overrate, which <laughs> come the end of the uh, first test cost them, you know, about thirteen grand a man in match fees and and five points in the in the World Test Championship. So, yeah, you've got to say, I mean, it's just it's one of the many sort of contributing factors to what was a pretty disastrous start. Does Joe Root need to back himself more with the ball? Oh, hi, Paul. Sorry, I didn't see you there. You, you take me by surprise, though. <laughs> Sneak in. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I mean, I, it, 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 in the event of them picking an all-seam attack, yeah, it's right. I mean, Jack, Joe Root is going to have to um, have a bit, put a bit more into his own bowling, and that, you know, that asks a lot of him because it's, it's probably, a, it's a discipline he's better at than he thinks. I, I believe. I think he's, I think he's a much better spinner than he probably gives himself credit for. But the amount of mental energy that is taken up by the captaincy, and also trying to sustain this absolutely celestial run of form that he's enjoying in. In 2021, I think ideally, yes, he'd, he'd rather have a frontline spinner to turn to rather than have to, you know, be digging England out of the hole uh, with the ball, given that that's what he does so regularly with the bat. So um, it might be the way they go, but it is a huge ask for him. Turning to the batting, um, the one thing with this test was on, you know, <laughs> Thursday night, Friday, uh, we had the hope of that uh, Root and Milan. Um, stand which all of a sudden thought oh maybe can we possibly but another collapse put paid to those faint glimmers of hope um you got any thoughts on the batting in terms of uh, maybe not selection but just uh, the batting order is it the right order for those players I think it probably is. I mean, I, I think I, England haven't really, when I mean, they haven't really got a settled opening partnership in that Haseeb Hamid and Rory Burns are very new together. And, and you were probably looking for Rory Burns to, to really kind of step up there as the experienced man. You know, he's got 30 tests behind him. And that first ball by Mitchell Stark, just absolutely, I mean, I don't know. I mean, that was, it was a mind-blowing moment. And, and fair play to Stark, you know, it's absolutely superb, the surge of energy that that gave Australia at the start of a test match. But what it did to Rory Burns, you know, clearly affected his confidence. I think it was only the fourth time in 260-odd first-class innings that he then hasn't faced up to the first ball in the second innings, which, I, which is quite a brave call when you think you're surrounded by all those Australian close fielders who I've got no doubt would be giving him an earful about that and probably will do throughout the rest of the series. David Milan is, he's not really a natural number three, is he? He's, he is, and he's a number five by trade, you'd have to say. And that's that's where he had his success in Australia four years ago. Fair play to him. He's stepping up and, and filling the hole. He's, you know, it's, it's an opportunity that's come late in his career, one he probably never thought was going to come. So he was never going to turn down number three. Is it his natural position? Possibly not, but the job of those top three essentially is for at least two of them to come off to keep Joe Root away from that new ball. And it's something they failed. They, they managed to do that in the second innings, but they summarily failed to do it in the first. And obviously, Hayeswood got Root out for a duck, which, um, you know, again, was was part of that sort of cataclysmic first day. Thereafter, you're looking at guys like Ben Stokes, who is, you know, he's coming off a, a four-month layoff. We saw how rusty he looked with the ball, but, you know, you've got to factor in the batting side of it as well in terms of, you know, it's only in the last sort of six weeks since he had that second finger operation that he's been able to grip a bat 
at all around the handle. You know, he's that's where he's, he really struggled. And that was, I think that was feeding into a lot of his, um, the mental side of it as well. Um, a guy like Ollie Pope, who, you know, we look at him and we say, well, he, you know, th this is the Ian Bell clone. He gets these huge raps for the work, his sort of technical excellence against Seam. But I must say, it's slightly, I'm slightly worried about how sort of skittish he looks against against offspin. Nathan Lyons, you know, he's clearly a, an excellent test bowler. He's just brought up 400 test wickets. So it's not to play down his ability. But but Ollie Pope, we saw it in India. We saw it a bit in the summer against India as well in the, in the return series at home. And then that second innings against Nathan Lyon, you know, just, just cutting so judiciously early in his innings with a ball that's spinning into him on a pitch that, you know, that's starting to, the bounce is starting to go up and down. That was a poor shot. Um, and again, just Butler, just, just Butler just continues to kind of frustrate. You saw in the first innings, I mean, he, he was the one that kind of led that fight back. And I, I probably think that's probably the way for him to go out here, um, particularly when the fields are up. Um, if he, he's probably, his best bet is to be positive and attacking and try and use the, the the fields being tied up to try and go over the top because you know that is his natural game probably more than trying to trying to grind out runs from uh, from number seven um but unfortunately again the same issue from four years ago is that the england's tail is going to be bombarded by this australian pace attack and they're going to need to find answers and, and the issue they've got really is that chris wokes is probably the only natural number eight in the whole squad um, he's not particularly comfortable against a short ball. Um, and Ollie Robinson, we saw, you know, first innings, he, he pretty much backed away, didn't he, and played that wild drive behind. So he's he's someone that, you know, is, again, is, might might be a result of a lack of warm-up cricket, et cetera, and there's only so much you can do in the nets. But, you know, you're looking for guys. It shouldn't come down to the tail to have to sort of bail out the top order, but ultimately their time is going to come. And England... They're just not going to win this series or have any chance in this series if, if it's a case of, you know, seven out, all out. So, um, so yeah, there's in terms of personnel, I don't really see any changes for this test match in terms of the batting. Um, but in terms of the approach, I guess you just kind of fingers across that they've just got a little bit more used to conditions. It won't be nearly as bouncy in Adelaide, we don't think, as we saw at the Gabba. And that did seem to be their undoing um, for a few of the dismissals in terms of, you know, just that probably... 10, 20 centimetres extra bounce that you don't get in England seem to catch them by surprise. So that hopefully won't be the case in, in Adelaide, albeit they've got the pink ball coming up and um, Australia, uh, I think they've played eight pink balls at home, pink ball tests at home and they've won all eight uh, and it's five from five in Adelaide. So um, it is a seriously tough examination coming up for them. Um, but who knows if, if the game is, if they leave a bit of grass on, if it's a bit of a low scoring dogfight, um, who knows? We, England could emerge on top that way, I suppose. But um, seeing them putting on big runs, they talk about big runs, um, but we haven't really seen it all year. I think they've only got one, gone past 400 in the, once in the last 19 innings or something like that. And, um, you know, we saw at the Oval and at Lords during the summer against India is when, even when presented with a chance to kind of second innings, dig themselves out of a hole, they were just unable to resist. So um, it's a it's a massive concern and uh, it's one that they've got, you know, pretty much two days of training to rectify. What are your thoughts on Brodie and Jimmy uh, in all of this? Um, do you see them coming back, one or both coming back for Adelaide? I mean, I, cer I certainly see Jimmy Anderson coming back. And to be honest, I, it was interesting, especially being in Australia and hearing a lot of the narrative around those two is that, you know, they, they are guys that it was a massive shock to the sort of the, the, the commentary out here in Australia that those two weren't at the Gabba. 
And um, I'd have to say that in the in the case of Jimmy, I, I could understand it. He, he had a, a bit of a calf niggle at the start of the tour. So he had about two weeks delay before he could start bowling in the nets. Um, that set him back. They said he was in you know prime match condition for the first test. He was fit to pass, fit to play. But ultimately, I think having seen the way that his calf blew up in that first Ashes test in 2019 at Edgebaston, which basically left them playing with, for, with 10 men for the entire test match, um, they went for the cautious route with him. And given that he averages 75 of the ball at the, at the Gabba, I know it was a green top, but I don't think that was necessarily the worst call. I wouldn't criticise him for that. It does surprise me that they left out both of them, I must admit. Um, and as I said earlier, I, I, I would have probably gone for the five the five strong pace attack and bowled first. That would have been the tactics I'd have gone for. Um, but yeah, uh, but how Stuart Broad gets back into this side uh, is probably the the big the big question mark for England because you know that where if you're going to assume that Leach probably makes way for Anderson, um, which of the three seamers do you leave out to get Stuart Broad in that played in the first test? You know, Ollie Robinson was was the standout. Uh, he was a standout performer. Um, and again, I say it was interesting about the commentary in Australia was that. that I would, in years gone by, I'd expected there to have been a lot of sort of talking out the side of their mouths about the fact that the blokes, you know, not not very quick, and there probably be unflattering comparisons with Gus Fraser or Derek Pringle and what have you. But actually, there was a huge amount of respect. Ricky Ponting was absolutely glowing about Ollie Robinson on on commentary, you know, really admiring his craft, the lines that he was banging out, and the movement he was still getting with the ball even when it got older. So you, you feel like he's got to play. Um, Mark Wood, you know, the way, I mean, uh, he only took two wickets, but he did knock over Steve Smith for 12, which is, you know, which is the kind of key wicket. We kind of expect Steve Smith to, to be scoring big runs in this series. And if there's an early kind of hold over him, and I know it's only one dismissal, but Mark Wood and particularly what he did, uh, I think he, he got a few of them hopping. He got, he got Warner hopping, he got Travis Head hopping. You know, you've, you think Mark Wood's got to play. There's a bit more of a gap between this and the, and the Boxing Day test as well. So, You'd feel like Mark Wood has to play just as a point of difference. But then if Chris Wokes is the one to make way, and Chris Wokes, he didn't have a bad game with the ball. It wasn't, he wasn't hugely penetrative. But if you get rid of Chris Wokes, um, your tail starts at number eight, as I say. And then there is a lot more pressure on a batting lineup that, that hasn't been able to put big runs on, on the scoreboard at all. I know that's a, a negative way of thinking about it. You probably, there's an argument to say, pick, pick your best bowlers, pick your best batsmen and go from there. But you do have to balance the side out. And um, yeah, no Chris Wokes at eight. As I say, if that moves Ollie Robinson to number nine, um, England will be under huge pressure at the top of the order because um, there won't be anyone to bail them out. There's talk reaching us this morning of uh, possibly some injury uh, news from the Australian camp. Um, there's there's noise about David Warner um, and also Josh, Josh Hazel, uh, Hazelwood as well. Uh, is a potential doubt for the Test match. Um, are you hearing anything from your end? Yeah, well, Cricket Australia have now confirmed that Hazelwood will definitely miss the Test match. Um, and that probably has to be seen as a bonus for England. I think he takes his wickets at 18 in pink ball tests in, in Adelaide. And, um, you know, he's obviously, I mean, he's just a, a world-class performer. We've seen it. We've seen it in the last two Ashes series at least, haven't we? So... Um, that is a big bonus. In terms of Warner, it's going to be an interesting one to see how he goes. I think we're going to have to watch him in nets this week and see how comfortable he is because Australia haven't confirmed what the injury is. Uh, there's only talk of him having sore ribs, but to spend pretty much two days off the field and not open um, in that very small run chase on the final day or what became the final day, 
you've got to assume that that's probably quite a serious injury there, possibly even a cracked rib. Now, I don't know, they could probably uh, jab him up to the max with um, your pain-killing injections and, and hide him in the field, probably put him in the slip so he doesn't have to throw and what have you. But that is going to be causing him discomfort. And I know it won't be as bouncy at the Gabba as uh, Adelaide as it was at the Gabba. But again, you, you, if, you, if the guy's movement is impeded uh, and England do have Mark Wood in their attack, that could cause them problems as well. So, albeit it was Ben Stokes who actually, we, we think, inflicted that injury when he, when he hit him with a short ball um, in Brisbane. So that would be, that's their big headache, I think. And while Jai Richardson, who looks a very talented outswing bowler, a lot of pace, uh, he's only 25. He's clearly the next cab off the rank with the bowling. I think they'd have to go for experience if Warner missed out, and that would be Usman Kawaja coming back in, probably to open, I think. So, albeit, I mean, out of looking at his record in the last uh, few weeks, he's he's the top scorer in the Sheffield Shield, averaging 69 or around that. So, he'd come in in four minutes and, you know, it, feeling good about himself. So, yeah, two changes possibly for Australia. One definitely confirmed, one we're waiting on. Um, but Hazelwood's, you know, that is, that's, that's not the worst news England could have got. I mean, also, you, you know, you never want to see guys get injured. Um, and I'm not saying it's, it's Glenn McGrath stepping on a ball at Edgebaston in, in 2005, but, um, you know, that's, that, that, that will, that should make life a bit easier for England, especially with Richardson quite young. He's only played a couple of tests. If they can get on top of him, then, you know, it could present, um, an avenue into the game. Given the, um, and I'm not going to get into the wider debate, but just cricket is in a bit of navel-gazing uh, as a sport at the moment uh, with, with many things that are going on. Um, so to me, it was really timely that we go into an Ashes series, which is, to every cricket fan, it's, it's the, the biggest moment. It's the thing that really stirs the spirit and everything and all the rest of it. Um, but I think also, um, after, for me, a rather sterile T20 World Cup where empty stadiums or where they were um, to see real cricket fans back and all the personality and the occasion that goes with the Nash's series. Um, I posted a couple of videos on our social media of uh, the Richies um, that turn up, <laughs> the, the Australian equivalent of the Barmy Army um, uh, and just the joy and the celebration. It just, for me, just is a real shot in the arm um, after those awful stadium cheerleaders that we had in the UAE for the World Cup, um, just unbelievable. It just feels like we're back playing and watching cricket again now. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I mean, as I said at the top of the show, we, you know, we 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 were stuck in Sydney watching it remotely. So, but but you could. It's interesting about you say about the, the World T20. I mean, I agree. I thought it was a it was a pretty forgettable tournament. Um, but Australia did win it, and so you kind of expected there to be a big, you know, a big noise about that here. But it just didn't didn't seem to resonate. Didn't seem to generate the kind of uh, the kind of thing that we've seen in the last week, which is when when you know when the guys are back out there in whites with the baggy green cap on, and it's you know, uh, and and it's the Poms getting a stuffing. That's that is really when it enters the zeitgeist in this country, and you know it's being talked about on news programs, on radio, on um, on as I say, radio phone-ins, etc. It, it, it's the papers go nuts for it, uh, for Test cricket uh, and Ashes cricket in particular. Um, and yeah, as someone who probably counts themselves as a, as a as a traditionalist, it's uh, it's great to see. There's an interesting uh, side story going on that the Big Bash is taking place um, side by cheek by jowl with the Ashes. Uh, mm. How is that being received uh, locally? 
It's interesting. It doesn't. It doesn't really attract. I mean, if I tell you what, where it differs from from cricket in England is that I've I've certainly found with the hundred all summer is that everything in English cricket pointed to the hundred, whereas actually the job of that competition is to point outwards, right? So it is to bring people into the you know it's it's meant to be the shop window. It's meant to bring people in and point them to the back where the good stuff is, right? And uh, but over here, you do, when you watch the Big Bash coverage, yeah, the grounds aren't particularly full, but it's a very young crowd. And also there is a big crossover with Test cricket. The, the commentators are constantly referencing what's happened during the Test match that day. And there's a lot more promotion back and forth between the formats. So, look, while it is being played in slightly empty grounds and, they, and I think they probably do suffer from some of the big name Aussies being on Test duty. Uh, and that's, you know, that's that's something they've just clearly made their peace with. Um, it is, you know, part of the furniture here. And um, and you can see the job that it's doing pro- possibly a bit more than um, than some of the formats in England in terms of that cross pollination, in terms of, you know, when you've got that captive audience watching the short stuff, still talking to them about what's happening in the test match. You know, and, and I, I, I know it's maybe it's a small thing. Maybe it would only convert a handful of people. But you just sort of think. The hundred should be doing more. Should have been doing more last summer to really promote the whole game, but it was clearly just trying to find its feet uh, in its first year. So hopefully that changes over time, um, given that it's not going away. Um, but I just like personally would like to see a bit more of that. To be honest, in the style of the Big Bash, it's not the Big Bash isn't again. It doesn't capture the national imagination here, um, but it is also a pretty reliable source of entertainment of an evening. You know, it's on free to air Channel Seven um it's hugely colorful and you know I, some of the commentary grates a little bit for for english ears but but <laughs> but ultimately you know people are having having a good time so it's it's just it's just not the same level as test cricket over here test cricket is is the true start of summer probably a lesson to be learned uh, over here i mean the, the 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 biggest criticism and the most glaringly obvious uh problem that we had last year was this delineation of the summer into T20 Blast, Test Matches, Red Bull, 100, uh, and the poor old Royal London Cup as the distant relative. Um, maybe this is an example that given that there are clearly different audiences in, in, in England for different forms of cricket, that you don't need to segregate them. You can run all of these competitions and coverage, you know, um, in tandem with each other. You don't need to separate them. Yeah, possibly. It's, I guess. I guess the problem is, is, is that fourth format and and eight stroke sixteen new teams. If you go for the men's and women's teams as well. I mean, the women's side of it was was the big plus of the hundred, wasn't it, during the summer? And that was, I mean, you know, I was I was pretty taken by that. Um, but I probably would have argued that you could have achieved that in in a different way. But the problem with adding something on top and not taking anything away, as you say, it leads to such a congested fixture list. Mm. Um, and 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 it doesn't each competition doesn't really manage to get that sort of narrative that builds up over the summer um, in the same way that international cricket does. And, and that's kind of, that's something they've got to answer. I don't, I don't know what the solution is unless you, unless you don't have the hundred or unless you start trimming down the blast or, you know, even making short form cricket, the domain of the hundred um, or you dispense with the 50 over cup. I mean, it's, it's just, there is too much cricket and yet the answer always seems to be, add more cricket so um yeah yeah you know that's that's where we're at i mean it just and even looking at the international um schedule at the moment next winter is 
unbelievable. I mean, England, England have got tours to uh, Bangladesh, Pakistan. There's a World T20. There's a back, back for a test series in Pakistan. Uh, they've got a two test series in New Zealand, which was the thank you for them coming over um, last uh, during the summer. And then there's also the one day tour of South Africa as well. So it's utterly congested. That will then roll into the IPL. Um, even even this even this winter, we've got you know we've got a full Caribbean tour, which is going to be followed by the IPL, and then straight into a test series at home against New Zealand as well. Um, and I'm afraid that that will ultimately just see people resting. It won't. I don't think the IPL will make way because it pays too much in too short amount of time for the players to turn it down, which means the international product is being diluted as a result of, of players being rested and rotated. Um, that in turn puts off the broadcasters. We've already seen you know, Sky shouldering arms to overseas tours now. That used to be the West Indies tour used to be the iconic Sky tour, didn't it? And, yeah, um, yeah. It was the, the very the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that. That's pretty much watching that after school is how I got into cricket. So, um, you know, to see that go to BT, where again it would be a reduced audience, um, it just it's quite sad to watch. To be honest, it's, it sort of feels like international cricket is eating itself, uh, and the boards are, are kind of letting it happen because you know they want to sort of funnel people towards um, their, their short form tournaments. Um, I don't know. It just, everything it does things do seem in a bit of a death spiral at the moment, which I think sounds a bit like a bit of a downbeat note. While I'm out here watching, a, you know, a, an iconic Ashes series, but um, just looking into the future, it's, it's got to be a concern. But that's the trouble, isn't it? It's, it's money driving everything, whether it's individuals playing IPL for money or whether it's TV rights, meaning that it's not free to air or it's not publicly available easily. It's, mm. it's money that's driving the sport. And I guess if we look at the context of the, of the Ashes series, the way that the... and you may have covered this at the start, but the, the lack of preparation, I think, in this in this format of cricket, maybe not test match, but a longer format of cricket, is probably ultimately, if you trace it all the way back, driven by money being pumped into the shorter form of cricket. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's true. And 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 you know, and that, that kind of goes to back to the players that are being produced by the domestic system in that you've got to look at the, the you know the, the team that won the World Cup in 2019 now. We, in fact, we probably saw this summer just gone when when the whole squad was knocked out by COVID and Ben Stokes captained a, what was a scratch team, is that we've got an incredible generation of white ball cricketers in England at the moment. I mean, it is they are being produced left, right and centre, and there is so much depth that guys... and We've just seen a PSL draft in the last couple of days, 15 English players picked up, you know, the huge amounts of white ball talent. But ultimately, the test team, not a single batsman to make his debut since Joe Root in 2012 has averaged over 40. And that, I mean, that is that is kind of indicative of a, of a system that is failing to, the, whether it's the pitches, and, and this isn't me having a go at the counties, because, you know, they are ultimately trying to squeeze everything in while themselves trying to, you know, pick up the beer money from the blast games and what have you and still sort of have their little niche um, in their own in their own local markets. But I'm afraid that the, the quality of cricket that that's producing in, in Red Bull cricket um, it's not churning out the players. And that is ultimately, you, you, you produce the players to play for England, which brings in the TV money, which then goes back into the county system. It's meant to be a symbiotic relationship, but something's not right at the moment because of, we're just seeing a, a generation of white ball cricketers being produced. And let's be honest, white ball cricket, I mean, World Cups are different, but ultimately franchise cricket is such less pressure than playing in franchise leagues. And I think that's a big factor as well. I think I think it's probably the easier format. You know, there's there's less scrutiny, there's less pressure. You, when you're playing short form cricket, you're looking to really come off. You know, the best players will try and come off one in one in one in five matches, maybe. 
and, and they probably make their peace with failure more. And we only have to look at the test cricket that we've just seen and the absolute agony of Rory Burns after that first delivery to see that, you know, there is nothing that compares to test cricket. But whether that is going to be sustainable over a period of time, whether that's the, the, the format that players are still going to want to drive their games towards, I don't know, because, there's, you know, there's a quick and probably easier buck to be made as a white ball cricketer. And a lot of the, a lot of guys are doing it. All right. Before we let you go, uh, I've got to ask mm. you what your predictions for Adelaide, what are your predictions for the Ashes? Uh, what's what's it going to end up at? <laughs> well, I haven't. <laughs> I, I, I find it very interesting that England have put so much stock in this pink ball when they've never won a pink ball test away from home, and Australia have won all eight on uh, on Australian soil. Um, but uh, I do fear about a bit of a steamrolling if they don't. Uh, somehow managed to pull off a win so I'm I'm going to say England just for this one if they can you know it, again it's going to come down to conditions as well we talk about twilight and bowling under lights I mean Aust India were played a pink ball test earlier this year in Adelaide and got bowled out for 36 in broad daylight so right, yeah. uh, you know there's it, it's a very capricious format we've also seen David Warner score through an unbeaten 300 in a pink ball test so it's a really capricious format and it will be a bit of a lottery in terms of who gets what conditions at what time then also what they can, you know, whether they can make the most of it. I would like to think that England, you know, one one test to the good, possibly without Josh Hazelwood in the Australian side, and maybe even David Warner missing, that they can just pounce here and and level the series. Um, but I must admit, over the course of five test matches, I'm I'm struggling to I'm struggling to see it. Hobart's an interesting one that you know for a fifth test. They, they never played national test there before. It's going to be chilly and cold. It's another pink ball test again. We don't know what pink ball tests do in Hobart because it'll be the first one they've hosted. So stadium, you know, less fans. Exactly, exactly. And it is, there is a bit of jeopardy in the, in both of these games. Um, it's just how they fare on those dropping wickets in Melbourne and Sydney where it does go pretty flat. Uh, and I must admit, I'd have, I would assume that Australia would have the edge over them there. So I probably, I'm probably going to put my money one test into the series on a 3-1 on a Australian victory. But, you know, it, I think England getting a test win out here would be a big achievement. Uh, in and of itself, and I think that would be something that we would be would be able to celebrate, given that they've lost what what is it ten of the last eleven Test matches in Australia. So uh, to get a win would be a big feat. I think we're probably in fancy land in terms of talking about the series win, but you know just 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 to, just to see them get a win and possibly a few guys step up. Maybe hopefully Joe Root can add a seventh or possibly even eighth hundred to his to his remarkable twenty twenty one. I think they're they're the things we're, we're looking for. Um, it's a, it's just, it's just great to be here. To be honest, I, I feel very, very lucky to be here, and I, I know I'm in a privileged position as well because, as, as, as great as the Brisbane Barmies were, there are clearly thousands of people who would love to have made the trip over who weren't able to do so. So, um, you know, fingers crossed, fingers crossed that they can reward some of the the people that are staying up all night drinking coffee and uh, and trying to get through what is uh, sometimes quite a testing challenge. <laughs> well, go well. Um... Many thanks for giving mm. your time, Ali, and uh, we look forward to reading your coverage in The Guardian uh, for all of those listeners who uh, want some intelligent and thoughtful uh, coverage of this <laughs> test match um, and all the test matches. So um, uh, great to see you and, uh, you know, make the most of it. I know it's not the ideal uh, Ashes tour for people on and off the pitch, but uh, uh, I'm sure you'll, uh, you'll find time, many ways to pass your time. Yeah, don't, don't worry. You can put the violins away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Ali Martin from The Guardian. Many thanks for joining us. Cheers, guys.